Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Heavenly Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the psychologists tell us that uh, when human beings face stressful circumstances, um, they tend to respond in one of four ways. They, they all begin with the same letter. So psychologists are just like preachers. Um, here they are, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Maybe you've heard that kind of description, something like it. I'm sure it's not exhaustive, but often when people feel under pressure, they tend to act in one of those ways. They hit out. They get out, they do nothing, or they simply people-please, and they do all they can to avoid conflict. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And sometimes uh, something similar happens when Christians come under pressure, when they've faced opposition, when they've found themselves living in a culture that is very different to uh, the one their faith holds on to. The people of God have often responded in one of those ways, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. It might sound something like this, our values are under attack, and we need to start thinking about ways to hit back. The world is so far gone that we just need to escape it. No one at work is a Christian, and so I better keep my head down. Uh, The guys on my course think Christians are really weird. I should just try and show them that we can be normal. I wonder if you've ever felt something uh, like that. I think I've felt all four of those things, or done all four of those things. And it's why Daniel is such a great book for us to study. We're going to look at it together in the next few months. It's been a book that Christians have drawn strength from and down through the ages. At different times in church history, this book has felt very apt, and it feels very apt this evening. Now, the temptation when starting a a series like this is to give you lots of um, introductory information Before we get into the text, I am not going to do that. You will be, uh, some of you might be quite relieved about that. Instead, what I'm going to try and do is bring bring the background into the foreground as we go along and tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. And so this evening, we're going to get our noses into the text of chapter one. And there are three things I want us to, to see together. First, in in verses 1 and 2, is the governed rulers. The governed rulers. Look how Daniel begins. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The year is 605 BC. And what is described here is the first of three raids on Judah. And uh, Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite um, commentators, he calls verse 1, he calls it uh, the media take on events. 
what we read in the opening verse is what the Babylonians, they would have read over their coffee, over their toast that morning. And yet for God's people, this was a complete disaster. And it was a kind of triple humiliation. It was a political humiliation. Their, their king is taken. It was a theological humiliation. Their, their temple was ransacked. But it was also a geographical humiliation. They were moved. They were taken from the place they belonged to. And this geographic element it is really underlined when we realize where Nebuchadnezzar's treasury was. In verse 2, we read that they, these things were put in the land of Shinar. Now, in Genesis 11, we read that um, this was the place that the Tower of Babel was built. Uh, the place that men and women tried to, to make a name for themselves. And so maybe you can feel the significance of that. God looks defeated. God's people look totally defeated. And yet look at verse 2 again. Look at the first four words of verse 2. They should be jumping off the page this evening, flashing red. And the Lord gave. You don't read that in the news. And yet it's true. Nebuchadnezzar went on the attack. And yet what was he doing? He was doing God's will. I think we saw something of this in Isaiah 40. Before the exile, God's people, are, they're told it's coming. In the closing chapters of Second Kings, it does. Jerusalem falls. And yet can you see, can you see the comfort even in this? Can you see what it means for your life, for my life? It means there's a guide. It means there's a hidden hand. It means there's a word above all earthly powers. Nothing is outside God's control. You and I don't live in a, a world of chance. God is sovereign. And maybe tonight that thought is not a comfort to you. Maybe you wrestle with that thought. Maybe personal experiences make that thought, that reality, a huge challenge for you. Maybe you find it hard to think of God allowing an event like the exile. Well, remember the scale God operates on. God sees the whole board. God sees your suffering. God knows what you have to put up with. And God still got hold of you. And we need to let, we need to let verses 1 and 2 shape how we look at the world. We have a God who keeps his word. And if he's true to his word when it's a word of judgment, if God says, I am going to send you into exile as my people, and then God does that, if God follows through, well, you can know for certain that he will do the same with words of grace. The early church, they learned this. In Acts chapter 4, they were under pressure. They were praying together. And as they did, Luke tells us that they quoted Psalm 2, which we uh, sang together earlier. They remember how rulers Herod and Pilate 
conspired with the Gentiles to kill Jesus. And yet then they remember their doctrine of providence. They say this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, it's just like Daniel chapter 1. If God can guide a king as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar, if Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan, then God can take care of you and me. So we see in this chapter, we see the governed rulers. But we also see here, we see the free captives. That's the second thing, the free captives. See, if verses 1 and 2 was about um, something or someone hidden, verses 3 to 16, they tell us the story of four men whose lives were anything but. And the big takeaway from these verses is that Daniel and his friends, they are visibly different from those around them. And we've mentioned the context already. Before we look at uh, these verses, let me say something about the book's style and its structure. Um, Daniel's a, a fascinating book because it's not written in one genre. It's not like a letter like Galatians or a collection of poetry like the Psalms. So Daniel is a book of stories, and it's also a book of visions. Uh, chapters 1 to 6 are the stories. Chapter 7 to 12 are the visions. There is actually another way you can divide up this book, but I am not going to tell it to you until next week. For now, let's focus on uh, the first story. And in verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he adopts um, a strategy, a strategy often used by conquering powers throughout history. The Babylonians, they grab the cream of the crop from among Israel. They try to make them their own. They take the brightest and best. They give them a place on their civil service training program. And for three years, Ashpenaz is to teach them the literature, the language of the Babylonians. Now, this was a, a promising position, a promising position in a growing empire. And it was a role that came with perks not least gastronomic perks. And if they just kept their heads down, uh, these men, they'd have a secure, they'd have a prosperous future ahead of them. In verse 6, the camera focuses in on four of these chosen ones, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're given new names that, that reflect the names of Babylonian gods. They are given new identities, to match their new location. But before we look at what Daniel um, couldn't do, I want us to think a little bit about what Daniel and his friends felt free to do. Daniel is willing to have a new name. Daniel is willing to serve a foreign power. Daniel's willing to study a different culture. He's not, not just study it, be immersed in it. At no point does he say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. He does say, that, say something to that effect in verse 8. But not before all of this. I think this teaches us a few things. Faithfulness to God doesn't mean that you and I have to do what's normally classed as Christian work. You do not have to get ordained to be God's servant. 
You can be faithful in work, in the government, in administration, in a university. You can still be faithful to God in that situation. It doesn't mean running away. Faithfulness to God doesn't mean running away from the world around us. Not only that, to be faithful to God, you and I, we often need to understand the attitudes of the people we rub shoulders with. Now, it was said of the men of Issachar, maybe you can remember this, that they understood the times they lived in. And you and I are called to do the same, studying, thinking, learning, using the mind and talents God has given us. That's a very Christian thing to do. All truth is God's truth. See, sometimes as Christians, we can uh, confuse piety with pietism. Uh, Piety, holiness is one thing, but pietism, running away from the world to some kind of sacred getaway, never coming back, that is another thing. And yet Daniel, I think the main message of this chapter comes in verse 8. Daniel also shows us our real need to be distinctive. You and I are to live like aliens and strangers here. We see this in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Um, A friend of mine used to have a t-shirt that said this, you can take the boy out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of the boy. And Daniel is a little bit like that. You can take the boy out of Judah, you can put him in Babylon, but he still belongs to another kingdom, another king. He submits, but he also resists. Uh, One translation of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, puts it this way, and I think it's really apt. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You and I, we're called to be different. Um, Ian Proven, a, a scholar I found really helpful as I've looked at this chapter and whose Hebrew is a lot better than mine. He points out a little detail here that is really striking. The verb, yasim. It's used in verse 7 to describe the new names that that Daniel and his friends uh, receive. And literally, it reads, set upon them these new names. These new names were set upon them. And that same verb, it is used in verse 8 as Daniel resolves, as he set upon his heart that he would not defile himself. Daniel is exiled. Daniel is far away from home. And yet God still has his heart. That's you if you know Jesus tonight. He's captive. But there's a whole place in his life that the chains of his captors can't reach. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter Three, Peter writes, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. 
Daniel models, I think, gentleness and respect in the way he conducts himself. He doesn't demand. He asks, verse 8. He doesn't insist on his rights. And he makes a really reasonable request, the vegetable test. Now, there's been lots of um, speculation. This is the kind of detail in a, a Bible chapter that commentators love to pour ink over. What's the deal with refusing the king's food and wine? And was it just because the food would have been unclean? Well, maybe, although that wouldn't have been the case uh, with the wine. I think the view I find most persuasive is that eating food like this, eating food that, that belonged to another, was a sign of identifying with that person. It was an act of loyalty. And sharing food, even today for us, it is a, an intimate thing, isn't it? And Daniel decided that he needed to draw a line. Do we have a line? Is there a line in our life that is fixed? Are there things that we will not do because of our allegiance to Jesus? Are there priorities that you and I have established that with the Holy Spirit's help, we are seeking to stick to. Now, there are lots of ways that we could apply this to our lives. Are there places we will not go, things we will not look at with God's help? Is there maybe a relationship that needs to end? I want to apply it by um, thinking about something that might seem a bit um, surprising, but I think it is really significant. Does the technology that we all enjoy, does it, do we own it or does it own us? I love this. I don't need a camera. I don't need a radio or a map or an alarm clock or a calendar I don't have to go to a bank. If I want to know the weather in Dundee or Dallas or Dubai, I can find that out. I can book a train. I can pay for parking. Whatever you want. It's an amazing device. And yet it has an ability to hoover up all of my attention. Every spare little moment. And recently, I heard about Linda Stone. She previously worked for Apple and Microsoft. She's famous for coining a couple of phrases, email apnea. And I think that's what happens when you've been looking at your emails for too long. But another phrase, continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. It sums up what so much of our modern lives are like. We're always moving, aren't we, from one thing to the next. We're always distracted. We're not very good at focusing. Could it be that you and I might be able to show our allegiance to Jesus by setting a few boundaries? Setting a few boundaries with our technology, not letting them hoover up our time and our energy. Are there ways we could show that we are different by giving our attention instead to what? To 
prayer to other people, to the Word of God. Well, we've seen the, the governed rulers. We've seen the free captives. But there's one more thing I want to, to show you tonight, and that is the committed God, the committed God, the governed rulers, the free captives, lastly, the committed God. And I think this is really important. Um, the moment we start thinking about our commitment to God, we can very easily forget that there's an even more fundamental fact for us as Christians, that God is committed to us. God perseveres with His people. God keeps His people. God watches over His people, as we uh, were singing earlier on. And I think we see this in chapter 1 in the way that God vindicates Daniel and his friends. In verse 9, God gives Daniel favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs. Rather than um, brushing him aside, he's willing to listen when Daniel speaks. In verse 15, after their stand and despite their diet, it must have been a miracle. God's servants are better in appearance than those who ate from the king's table. And then in verse 17, we read that God gave them learning and and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and, and dreams. These things were given to him by God. Now, they are found to be ten times better, verse 20, than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. I think there's a real encouragement for us here tonight. There's a principle that runs through Scripture, something we'll see in the other stories as well. They that honor me... I will honor. I mentioned um, Acts 4 earlier and the believer's prayer. Just before it, we read the account of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin as they're pressured not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. They say this, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And sometimes believers face a moment of decision like that. Maybe you are at a crossroads like that. And if you are, then you need to know this. If you choose to honor God in that situation, whatever it is, it will probably be hard, but you will not regret it. See, God is the one who is able to keep us all the days of our lives. There is no threat that can ultimately bring down his people, bring down the Christian. The God who begins a good work in us, he's the God who's able to bring it to completion. And I think we get just even a little glimpse of this in the final verse, in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, maybe you um, read that and you think, is that really such a big deal? It's the sort of historical detail that we skip over, isn't it? But I think verse 21 is possibly the most important verse in this whole chapter. You see, Daniel 1, it begins in 605 BC. But what's described in verse 21 is 539 BC, 66 years of history, 
66 years of God sustaining and keeping this man. And then what happens? Babylon falls. Babylon ends. Cyrus comes. He overthrows it. And so what does that teach us? It teaches us not to be too impressed by political power. It teaches us that we have a God who is able to hold on to us all the way through our lives. It reminds us that we belong to one who is in control of human history. That no empire is strong enough to stop you making it to the end of your Christian life. God is able to keep you. And you can't live, verse 8, unless you know verse 21. You can't live verse 8 unless you know verse 21. You can try, but unless you know that you have a God who is committed to you, well, your commitment to Him will always be hard. As we close, I want to take you from one empire to another. Come with me in a time travel machine to Rome to the end of the book of Acts. And Paul's in prison in chapter 28 of Acts in that great city. He's a captive just like Daniel and his friends. And Luke tells us he lived there two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And then comes the last word in Acts, akalutos, freely without hindrance. Paul is right in the heart of that great empire, the greatest empire the world has ever known. And yet he knows that Jesus is Lord. He belongs to a kingdom. He belongs to another kingdom, a kingdom that is growing until Jesus returns, wraps up history, and comes again. This is the kingdom that you and I belong to, This is the kingdom we are part of if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the dominion of darkness. We've been brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And tonight, God is calling us to live for that kingdom. Put that kingdom first. Seek first that kingdom. And so let's ask. Let's ask Him now for help to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the prayer that Christians have always prayed, your kingdom come. We thank you that one day that prayer will finally and fully be answered, will fully come to pass. Help us remember that that day is coming and help us live with your help in a way that honors Jesus. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to close our service tonight by reminding ourselves of this uh, truth. There is a higher throne. There is a higher throne. And all this world is known. We're faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Let's stand and sing together.